This is David Nockler with the OPC Committee on Diaconal Ministries. We're bringing this to you as part of a series of special episodes of the Reformed Deacon. These episodes consist of the audio of the many plenaries and workshops presented at the 4th OPC National Diaconal Summit held in Wheaton, Illinois in June 2022. It's our desire that deacons who were not able to attend the summit or those who simply missed one of the many wonderful workshops offered will benefit from this practical content. If you find this episode especially invigorating, please consider sharing it with your fellow deacons. If it's an episode that's particularly suited to the work of your diaconate, consider watching the video version of this presentation together with your fellow deacons and discussing it. All the videos can be found on opccdm.org. And now I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a joy to see you. It's even a greater joy to hear you sing. I'm Chris Sudlow. I'm here to introduce Dr. A. Craig Troxell, who's going to be our speaker this morning. There's three things I'd like to tell you about Craig. Craig is a theologian. He's currently professor of practical theology at Westminster, California. He is a graduate of Gordon-Conwell Seminary. He received his Ph.D. at Westminster He's been formative in the work of the MTI, the Ministerial Training Institute, and so he comes to us as a a very qualified theologian. Craig is also a pastor. He's pastored several churches uh, from Alaska to the East Coast to the Midwest. He's most recently my pastor at Bethel OPC here in Wheaton. Prior to that, he was pastor of Calvary OPC in Glenside, PA, which was my brother Steve's church and still is. And so I've known him a little bit from afar, and uh, the 12 years he was here, he truly served as a pastor to me and the rest of our church. Craig is a friend, and he's a mentor. One of his qualities that has always had such an impact on me as a friend, but also as a mentor, is his transparency. I would describe it as transparency that is magnetic. There is nothing he's holding back from who he is or what he's thinking or, or how he can help. Two quick stories about Craig, and then I'll ask him to come. We have a summer camp for children. It's a VBS. We call it nature camp. And one spring morning, uh, it was my job to come over and put the banners up in front of the church, and you've got to put steel stakes on and bungee them up and, you know, advertise the uh, summer nature camp for kids. And I get over there and the stake was too tall. So I had to come into the church and it's trying to get a ladder. It was like a seven foot stake. So I come into the church and uh, Troxy's over at his office at the way, milling away at the grind there as he usually is and discovers I'm there. He's like, well, Sudsy, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm, I'm here, you know, the nature camp, the banners, I'm putting up the banners. He goes, oh, 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 well, what do you need? I said, I'm just coming to get a ladder. I said, I don't want to interrupt you. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. So next thing I know, we're outside the, the church on the lawn. Troxel's up on the stepladder. I'm holding a seven-foot stake, and with a full-size sledgehammer, he's doing roundhouses. <laughs> and I'm holding the stake, and after the first couple, he's winding up, and he goes, 
do you trust me? Wham! And I said, I'd rather trust you in the pulpit. <laughs> Second quick story, and I'm out. Adult Sunday school, we do kind of a quarterly schedule for adults. We usually do two adult classes. On this particular occasion, it was one week before the next quarter of classes. I was leading a, a class on Deuteronomy. And uh, the week before, uh, right after church, we're milling around the adult Sunday school area, and somebody comes up to me and says, Chris, Chris, come on up front. I need you to do a promo for your class that starts next week. I said, okay, well, yeah, I guess. So here I am standing. I have no idea what I'm going to say, and I'm basically just blurted out something like, well, you know, Deuteronomy is an amazing book, and uh, it's quoted more times in the New Testament. I think it's 87. Uh, it's amazing, and, and, uh, and it's going to be great. And, uh, you know, it, it's, if it seems dry and dusty to you, uh, you know, give it a whirl. <laughs> and without anything else thoughtful to say, I simply said, if it was up to me, I'd just go to Craig's class. <laughs> Brother, you know we love you. Thank you for coming. As soon as he said stories, I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> what stories? Well, it's good to be with you. Good to be with this many OPC people. I was uh, at a dinner recently with the president of our school, Westminster Seminary, Joel Kim, sitting at a table, and he says, all right, Craig, you're sitting at a table, one OPC minister, three PCA ministers. What do you have to say to that? I said, I like my odds very much. So anyway, I'm looking forward to our spending some time in a confession of faith, chapter 26. And this may be a chapter that you've passed over. Uh, many have. When we think of the question, where do we get our doctrine for the church, everybody says chapter 25. But they forget about chapter 26. In one sense, this is overstating it, but chapter 25 is the trellis, and chapter 26 is the vine. Now, this tells us very much about the, the organic life of the church, as she is within herself. But there are some nuggets here uh, I've wanted to think about for some time, and I was so glad to have this opportunity to think out loud with you about one of these insights that I think is, is important for you as deacons and for all of us as, as servants. So you have an outline there in front of you this morning. There are three questions we're going to be asking this morning. The first one is going to be slow going. It's a little sluggish. We're even going to get into some grammar. So I've warned you ahead of time. Hope you had your coffee. You'll need it. And then we'll build upon that question for the second question. And those two questions, our answers are aggregate. They're essential for us to really understand the third question, where we're going to spend about half our time. So it's a little bit disproportionate, but I really want to push it forward in the direction of what's useful for you, and so that for our time would truly be useful, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Our gracious God and Father, again, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the living head of the church, and from which the body sustain, is sustained and gains all of her, her life, all of her vitality and strength and encouragement and comfort and help. And so again, we find ourselves turning to the one who, in our place, uh, died self-sacrificially and was raised for our justification and in his great triumph over the grave, ascended to the right hand of God, from which he has poured out the Spirit upon all of his church. Well, Father, we are looking to that great promise this morning, 
that all that we have in Christ, Christ who, as he comes to us, clothed with his gospel, comes with his spirit to grant to his church every gift and grace that we need that we'd be built up in strength. And just as we look to Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for our full acceptance in your sight, so also we look to his spirit for life. And so, Father, we pray that our labor would not be in vain this morning, and we ask for your blessings. We look for heaven to smile upon us as your people and as your servants. Grant us that wisdom that comes from above, not from men. Bless us to that end, we pray, O Father. All this to the encouragement and help of the people that we pray we will serve even better because of our time together, but most of all, all this to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. And so many Sundays, uh, you and I say credo sanctorum communionum. That is, if your church practices Latin services. I don't think it does. Um, But you say, I believe in the saints. I believe in the communion of saints. It's that phrase, communion of saints, uh, that we're going to be thinking about this morning. How does that compare with uh, the very trendy idea of community or building community? And communities are important to us. And building community is a pervasive idea. Uh, We see it throughout our lives. In schools, we attend sports events, band concerts, and of course, the dreaded parent-teacher conference. Uh, In our neighborhoods, we have have play dates, we have block parties, we look out for uh, our neighbors. And we think of the workplace, fitness clubs, uh, hobby groups, book clubs, scout troops. These are all important communities. They're places where we are literally building Community, but that is a phrase, building community has uh, become almost a necessary slogan in the business world, and you can find its offshoots and ideas um, in the business literature. And it's been eagerly welcomed by the church. In fact, it's become almost a necessary ingredient in church mission statements and a requirement for ministry strategy. I like to say that it's the newest inductee into the halls of church relevancy alongside being missional and having incarnational ministries. Now, this raises a question, though. Is this a healthy trend? Or to put it another way, which I think is more helpful for us, is community or building community the same thing as communion, or as we like to say, the communion of the saints? To me, it's an interesting question. I think it's a more important question than maybe some people realize. And that's really the first question. Is a church, is it a mere community, or is it a communion of saints. So we need to do a little bit of historical background here. So this is a not interesting part, uh, if you're not into church history. And we're going to talk a little bit about the meaning of these phrases, then we'll move to the confession, and then we'll move to scripture. It's exactly the opposite way you should do theology, right? <laughs> so in terms of the historical understanding of, of, of community, many of us think of it as a very, just on a very superficial way. Uh, it's just stressing the importance of investing yourself in, in relationships and in communities around you. But there's actually a deeper and more historic and ancient idea called communitarianism. And I don't want to get into the history of this, but it's a, it's a rather uh, manifold movement. But it's the basic insight of this is that your identity and your sense of meaning is actually shaped by your community, the community in which you live. This began as, as in political philosophy. It soon branched off in other disciplines, other traditions, even competing traditions and, and schools of thought and voices. Uh, but at the heart of it, and perhaps the cornerstone piece of literature, was written by Ferdinand Tunis. I'm sure all of you have the original German copy, Gemeinschaft und Gesellschaft, uh, published in 1887, Community and Society. 
And what he did is he, he simply said is that man is a social being, and he unfolds his, his essence only by living in communities of kinship. Now, I don't know how much you read, but some of postmodern theology leans very heavily upon Tunis, explicitly citing him. I'm thinking of Stanley Grenz and, and John Frankie, who, who go to Tony's, uh, Tunis to, to make this very point for all their insights with regard to uh, community. In fact, it's Grenz and Frankie who say community is the integrative motif and operates as an organizing concept of all theological construction. They're simply saying, it's this idea of community, it's the very heart of all theology, we're going to build everything upon it. Well, that's interesting because postmodern theology and postmodern philosophy says the same thing, that all knowledge is a social construct, uh, our knowledge is situated in a specific community, and so we no longer believe in truth, there's no longer any meta-message, it's just about learning the language and the vocabulary in your particular community. And so that's kind of the philosophical side that aligns with theology, but there's actually an older theological pedigree for community. And is found in the father of all modern theology, Friedrich Schleiermacher. And he says this, quote, The church is above all else a fellowship. And the whole idea of the church must derive from this assumption. And he's using the same word, Gemeinschaft, uh, that Tunis uses. Other schools of thought have done the same thing. Emil Brunner in Neo-Orthodoxy, the ecumenical movement, process theology like uh, Pierre Diachardin. Uh, liberation theology, Gutierrez, the social gospel, and, and many evangelical scholars as well, like Roger Olson. He says we should get rid of the language of church altogether and simply use the word community. And I don't know if you remember the emerging churches that's kind of petered out now, but that movement, the, one of their slogans, maybe the most well-known slogan, is communities that practice the way of Jesus. So this is all simply to say this. So the historical part is behind us in terms of community, so we're, we're good. But it's simply saying is that this is at the heart of how we should consider the church. But again, it raises the question then, as we take this historical idea of community or communitarianism, how does that stack up against the communion of the saints? So we turn to the communion of the saints. Now we need to get a historical understanding of this. Well, this is even more ancient. It comes from the old Roman creed, or also called the shorter Roman symbol. And this is the undisputed progenitor of the Apostles' Creed. This is where the Apostles' Creed comes from. And that Roman creed was a baptismal formula that we can date from the second century. We see it in different uh, uh, statements of faith. And that, that symbol, that Roman creed, is spread to the four different areas of the Roman Empire, uh, to northern Italy, to Spain, North Africa, but then also the Gaul region. It's the Gaul region. That's where we get our particular uh, Texas Receptus, as it were, of the Apostles' Creed. And um, it's, it's this particular form of the creed that Luther used in Calvin and Zwingli. This is the form of the creed that they recognize as an accepted doctrinal norm for the church. But this phrase, communion of saints, communium sanctorum, or sanctorum communionum, that's a late addition to the creed. It doesn't come in until after the 5th century. It's very, very late. And in fact, when you look at the documents of Ignatius, uh, the disciplines of of Irenaeus, or the Rules of Faith by Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, all these names that you've heard, um, they don't have this phrase. You don't see it in uh, the creeds of Caesarea or Nicaea. Ambrose and Augustine, they told their congregations to memorize the Apostles' Creed, but did not have this, this phrase. But Calvin says we love this phrase very much. It captures very well what we understand about the church. 
but what is that understanding? And you see, that's been an historic controversy, to put it very baldly, between Protestants and and Catholics. And it comes down to a piece of grammar. But we could could say the two two schools of thought are like this. There's a the school of thought that says this phrase, communion of the saints, refers to fellowship. It's about a community of holy persons. But you see, there's another interpretation, too, that it's actually what we call the sacramental view. It's a participation in holy things. So it's about people or things. And you say, well, how could you come up with that kind of interpretation? Well, it's because of this word sanctorum. Sanctorum is a genitive plural in the Latin, which means it can have two different roots. It can have a masculine root or it can have a neuter root. Now, I'm about ready to lose half of you. But just, just hang with me. It'll take five minutes. All right, so masculine, if it was masculine, it would be sancti. If it was neuter, it would be sancta. And both are grammatically possible. But it's interesting how people have interpreted it. So if it's sancti, masculine, it means holy people. It means a fellowship of all ages, of Christians of all ages in their union with Christ and in their fellowship with one another through Christ. That's been the prevailing view from the 5th to 8th century, 16th to the 18th century. But sancta, holy things, that means to participate or to share in holy things, like sacraments. That's why we call it the sacramental view. That, ar- that arose later in the medieval theology, and it's become more and more popular since the 19th century. You see it in Eastern Orthodox creeds, uh, sancta sanctus, holy things for God's holy people, or the Anglican phrase, uh, the gifts of God for the people of God. And so you can see they're kind of having it both ways. And of course, Rome wants everything, wants all of the above. And underneath this this one phrase, communion of the saints, it says, well, this is referring to the veneration of saints, a prayer to the saints. This includes the idea of purgatory and that you need to have fellowship with the Roman see. And of course, from this phrase, we understand we need transubstantiated elements that the, the bread and the cup actually turn into the body and the blood of Christ, it takes in everything. It's kind of like doing theology as accountant. What do you want it to say, right? And this, that's exactly how this phrase has been taken. So what is the Reformed understanding? The Reformed understanding has spoken with one voice. All the Reformed creeds say this is about, about people. All the Reformed creeds with one voice deny this has anything to do with veneration of saints, prayers of saints. It certainly does not require that we have to be in full fellowship with Rome. It affirms, the Reformed symbols affirm the church is a fellowship of God's holy people. It is a communion of saints. You see this in the Augsburg Confession, Belgic Confession, chapter 17 of the Second Helvetic Confession, Luther, Calvin, James Bannerman. And Heidelberg Catechism, question 55, puts it in this nice, pithy way. What does thou understand by the communion of saints? First, believers, all and everyone, as members of Christ, have part in him and in all his treasures and gifts. Secondly, that each one must feel himself bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the advantage and welfare of other members. So the Reformed position is that this is about people. This is about persons, not not things. But that leads us to a second question. Where does a church gain its life? And the reason I ask it that way is because what persons are we talking about? And it might seem obvious to you, but it gets back to the question about community versus communion of the saints. When we think about our communion with God, it's very interesting when we turn to the confession. And 
Chad Van Dixorn has said that the order of the paragraphs in each chapter of the Confession of Faith are extremely important. But we want to extend that idea, and I'm not sure if Chad said it, but we're just going to pretend that he did, that the order within the paragraph is important. Now, I think this is obvious, and I think it's true, and I think it's especially true for this. When you look at the Confession of Faith, and this is why these two paragraphs, there are three paragraphs, I'm not going to look at the third, these two paragraphs are in your material because I want us to look at them. If you look at chapter 26, it reflects a clear priority. There's an agenda built within uh, these paragraphs, especially the first one we're going to look at now, and it gives us a kind of a strategy in how we approach the meaning of the communion of the saints. So look at paragraph one. It goes like this. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him, with him, in his grace, his sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. Colon, and, or we could say, and consequently, being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. All right, so you see what it's doing. It's saying, first, it addresses our union and communion that we have with Christ. That's the vertical union and communion. And then it proceeds to talk about the communion we have with one another through Christ. That's the horizontal communion. So we're united to Christ by his spirit and by faith. We're united to one another in love. We have fellowship with Christ in his graces, in his suffering and death and resurrection, and in his glory. And so also we have communion in each other's gifts and graces. You see, it's using parallel language. It's building a construction here. And this order reflects a precedence. It starts with the primary and it goes on to the secondary. It starts with what is fundamental, our communion with God, which is vertical. That is the bedrock upon which this whole chapter rests. And then that consequent communion of the saints. Communion with Christ, then consequently communion of the saints. And so what the confession is doing, it's it's establishing a Christ-centered understanding of the communion of the saints. It's giving us an appropriate starting point. And that makes a world of difference. That starting point as we approach the meaning of the communion of the saints, that what believers share together in mutual communion stems from that more fundamental communion they have with Christ. Now, a great example of this is the Lord's Supper. What is the Lord's Supper all about? What is the Lord's Supper showing us? What is it teaching us? Well, the Lord's Supper functions first as a bond and a pledge of our union and communion with Christ as individual believers. And then it is consequently that bond and pledge of our union and communion with one another as members of Christ's body together. Both are true, but the one precedes the other. And that helps us to get at this question then. This this is an important question. So from where does the church, the community of saints, gain its life? Is it from some man-made community or a God-centered community? communion of saints. Is it horizontal or is it vertical? Now, I'll tell you why I think this is so important in terms of our day and age, in terms of theology and historically. It's because modern theology and what it means by community, it does not mean the same thing you and I mean. Community in modern theology is devoid of biblical supernaturalism. They talk about community, but in substance and in practice, is what we would call a demythologized community. That's the language of Rudolf Bultmann, the greatest distraction in the history of New Testament interpretation. Does not believe in supernaturalism. 
And modern theology has a horizontal view of the church. That's it. Without much or any emphasis upon the vertical, the spiritual. Our confession is telling us, and we're going to see in Scripture, that the vertical is all important. And by vertical, we, of course, we do mean that, that supernatural activity of God in the church's life and ministry, without which it has no power. It has no fruition. Any view or practice of the church that ignores supernaturalism invariably is going to warp and deform the meaning of the communion of the saints, not to mention every core doctrine in Scripture. B.B. Warfield was asked this question, is supernaturalism necessary for the Christian faith? You had to imagine he had to laugh when he heard this question. And he said there are three great themes in the Bible. The first great theme is redemption. But redemption assumes a second theme, which is revelation. But revelation assumes a third theme, which is supernaturalism. No supernaturalism, no revelation. No revelation, no redemption. Do you think it's important? I think it's important. Now, he didn't say that second part. I just kind of inserted that. But any practice of community is not built upon supernaturalism as a foundation. It's constructing what? A man-made community. It's a distortion of the real thing. In such a community, it lacks soul. It's deformed, kind of like Frankenstein's monster, only not as good looking. So the communion of the saints begins here. It's sustained here in our communion with the living Christ. Let's look at just one passage to kind of get us going here. John 15, 5. John 15, 5. Our Savior says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. All right, simple metaphor describing the union that we have with Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for, this is the all-important reason, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And it gets at the heart of this. The communion of the saints is above all else, the, the outworking of that deeper union and communion in which we partake of the powers of the world above through our communion with Christ by faith and by the power of the Spirit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw this in Life Together. You should really read this book. It's not very long. It's a very important book. But he says this. This is so interesting. He says, Christian community means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. There is no Christian community that is more than this and none that is less than this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. Or let's take our guy, James Bannerman, Scottish Presbyterian. He says, Christ is personally present, governs and administers ordinances and blessings through the church. The church has no store of life apart from Christ being in it. The ordinances of the church have no deposit of grace apart from Christ present with them. The office bearers of the church have no gift of power or authority or action apart from Christ ruling and acting by them. You see, he gets it. And by the way, Bannerman said, when we say that Christ is the head of the church, we do not simply mean that Christ is the establishing head. We mean he's the presiding head. That there's some things he does not subcontract out to others. This is the living Christ who says, I am building my church. And he is. Let's take another example of what we're uh, trying to talk about here. And it's seen in worship. Now, what is worship? Now, you and I both know that the ultimate purpose of worship is to bring glory to God. But what's the purpose of worship? And we could say the purpose is to have communion with God. It's communion with God. And let me read to you one of the most beautiful statements in our directory public worship. It says this. 
An assembly of public worship is not merely a gathering of God's children with each other, but is before all else a meeting of the triune God with his covenant people. You see what it's saying? It's saying the same thing. Before anything else, what is a worship service? It's the vertical. It's the connection we have with God. It's not merely our meeting together. It's more than just a community. It's a community of saints with the living God. Christ gathers in the presence of his people, and God's people gather in his presence. God's people draw near to him by faith. Christ draws near to his people by the Spirit. And all the efficacy, all the benefit of worship builds upon this assumption that the church is the dwelling place of God. The lifeblood of worship. It's found right here in this, in this vertical connection, not in its horizontal dimension. We have to ask ourselves, is worship a living dialogue or not? Does Christ speak to his people or not? Is the Holy Spirit ministering his grace and his truth to us or not? That's why by faith we wait and we listen expectantly in a worship service what neither humanity nor the world can supply. Because worship is so much more than a mere gathering of people. It's so much more than a community. Worship, the communion of the saints, is a holy people who are being set apart for sacred privileges and equipped for consecrated purposes as the true and the living God gathers with them in power and by the Spirit. And our worship and our hearts are being lifted up to heaven as a fragrant offering before God, acceptable through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what our communion is. That's where it starts. And it's in light of that that we can talk about our communion with one another, this horizontal. Now let's turn to Scripture again. 1 John 1.3 says, That which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. All right, so in part of this fellowship, God has given to his, his church gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, these are given to us to encourage one another. There is this this horizontal outpouring of love and encouragement to one another through the gifts of the Spirit. That's why they're given. But a simple question, how were these gifts given? How are these gifts sustained? Where do they get their their energy from? In 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, when Paul wants to encourage Timothy, he says, you need to fan in the flame the gift of God which is given to you through the laying on of hands. But he doesn't stop there, and he says, the reason you can do this is because God has given to us a spirit. A spirit, not of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and self-discipline. His ability to fan into flame this gift is because it's energized by the Holy Spirit. In fact, all the gifts are spirit-endowed and spirit-empowered. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 and following. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So Scripture is being very clear. Where is the sustenance of all this this spiritual activity? All of it is lodged where the church's spiritual life began, in the sovereign spirit of Christ. Those spirit-given gifts are empowered and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 4, 10, 11. As each has received a gift, 
use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace by the strength that God supplies. No, it's these, these gifts that are given to us, they're only strengthened with what comes from, from God. And in fact, every single command that Christ gives to the church for practicing the communion of the saints, what does it require? It requires a, a sustaining grace. It requires a power that is beyond ourselves that, that Christ alone can supply. And when you think of all the one another commands were given in Scripture to love each other, to serve, forbear, forgive, accept, comfort, greet, welcome, encourage, exhort, admonish, teach, instruct, build up, confess our sin to, speak the truth to, live in peace with, be kind to, do good to, pray for each other, show hospitality to one another, have fellowship with one another. None of these things can be done in the flesh. They cannot be self-manufactured. They're not supposed to be just natural or naturally produced. All of these are in constant need of the strengthening power of God. Why? So that they would bear spiritual fruit. Especially think of some of the major league commands that Christ gives to us. When he says, not just to show mercy, but show mercy to one another as I have shown you mercy. Forgive one another as I have forgiven you in Christ. And then the big one, love one another as I have loved you. Who's sufficient for those things? What kind of mere community is capable of that level of devotion and spiritual things? Not the Elks Club, not Kiwanis. Only those empowered by the Holy Spirit and God's grace can embody this level of virtue that Christ requires of his church. Christian service calls for spiritual power and wisdom. Their brothers are beyond our natural abilities. And this service demands the work of the Spirit so that the good deeds will be pursued with the right motives and for the right ends to truly encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ and do this all for the glory of God. And if we are not requesting the blessing of God's Spirit on our ministry, then where do we think this help is going to come from? From ourselves? So the ideals of the community of the saints are not within the reach of mere community building. What is taking place in a church body can only be built and sustained by its living head, who indwells it by his Holy Spirit. Now here's the question I have to get to the last question. Why in the world would we think that this truth, these principles that we've been reflecting upon, apply any less to a deacon than an elder or a minister? If everything I'm saying is true, why would they apply any less, apply any less to a deacon or to mercy ministry? And you see, that gets to the last question here about how does the church express its communion? And we read this chapter, and it's, it's heavily tilted in one direction, and we get the sense what's well, talking about this inward growth of the church, and it certainly is, that Christ promises to build his church and to build it from within. He promises to indwell his church and to empower his church by his Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of Christ distributes these gifts to every member of the church, and he invigorates those gifts for the common good, and so that those gifts are used, these graces are used to building up the church for her spiritual maturity, for her spiritual growth, to bring this about more and more and more, the strength and the faith of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that's absolutely true. It's absolutely necessary. In fact, that growth is necessary. Why? Because these bonds of communion are constantly being tested, constantly being tested in seasons of suffering or in strife or outward, outward oppression. Did COVID teach us nothing? I mean, the COVID exposed us in many ways, leadership, 
but it also tested the communion of the saints. And many of our churches, we thought we were doing better than we were. We thought we loved each other more than this. It was hard to see, wasn't it? But it shows we really need this to be taking place. And it, but if we faithfully sow in mutual service, we will reap spiritual benefits of mutual love for the, for the growing of the church. And so we, we tend to read the, this chapter this way, that it's talking about this inward um, expression and this inward growth and help. But that's not all it says. It's talking about how the, the church expresses its communion outwardly. And I don't mean in the community, that's, that's coming later. But in terms of outward physical needs, did you notice that as you read this carefully and studied it, med- meditated upon it before you walked into this room? In paragraph one, look at paragraph one, about halfway. It says, being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties. Now listen to this, public and private, as to conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. It's both these things, both in the inward and outward man. Look at the next paragraph. Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God, and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to the mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things, according to several abilities and necessities. In other words, the communion of the saints extends just as much to the outer man and outward things as it does to the inward man and inner spiritual needs. And what our standards are telling us is that we cannot just spiritualize away meeting each other's needs. We think of those widows in Acts 6. One way of saying it is that they needed to be loved. They were not being treated with love. They were being passed over. They needed to be loved. And that's why they needed to be fed and clothed and sheltered and remembered. But here's where we can misstep. We are tempted to think, well, since a deacon is ministering to the outer man and to outer things, then he does not need the spirit to sustain his gifts or empower his ministry. And what's the answer to that? In the words of Bill Shishko, baloney. <laughs> I'm from New York. I'm not from New York. I don't use that rough language. You know, I, <laughs> I'm a snowflake from Southern California. I'm, but it's totally wrong. Now think of what we've gathered up and what we're bringing to this point. Scripture and the confession is saying all the gifts that are poured out by the Spirit and endowed by the Spirit are empowered by the Spirit. Let's look at three Scripture passages to make this case, just in case you're in doubt. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 and following. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 and following. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. So it all comes from the same source. Verse 6 It is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. There's no exclusions from this. This is every gift that's given to the church of Christ. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Again, think of, secondly, 1 Peter 4. What does it say? That each one should use their gift as good stewards by the strength that God supplies. Here's another passage, Romans 12, verses 4 through 8. There, Paul is saying the same thing. He's talking about there's one body, but it has has many members. 
And he says in verse 6 there that these, these gifts differ according to the grace that's given. Each of them, verse 3 and 7, should be used according to the measure of faith that God assigns to us. But look at the sorts of things he talks about. It's not just some of what we call the spiritual gifts or word gifts. He talks about in verse 7, if it's in service, then you should be serving. Or in verse 8, he talks about if it's in contributing to the needs of the saints, you should do so in generosity. And then he says this, if it acts of mercy, acts, there it is, it's so explicit, do so with cheerfulness. And that's in the context where he's saying all of these things require God's grace. All these things are to be exercised by faith. These are spiritual ministries. And it brings us back to the insight of Dick Caffin. Now there's a real theologian for you. Dick Gaffin, his book on Perspectives on Pentecost, and he says, there is no distinction in the New Testament Testament between charismatic and non-charismatic gifts. There's no such distinction. They're all charismatic gifts. All the gifts that are given to deacons are charismatic gifts, apportioned by the Spirit and strengthened by the Spirit. Deacons are called to serve and to comfort and to welcome and to encourage and to build up and to be kind to others and do good. But none of those things, none of those can be contrived naturally or automatically. And there are seasons when you know that very well. If they're going to have the right spiritual effect, if they're going to bring about the spiritual fruit and the thanksgiving that we want from God's people, they need to be empowered by God. They need to be driven by prayer and that deep wisdom that we need. All these are in constant need of the spiritual power of God. All these are in need of that all-sufficient grace that we have in the head of the church Think of the first deacons, and I, I agree uh, with Bill about this Act 6 about these deacons. Why in the world would you look for deacons who could just do these outward things and not ask, we need men who are filled with the Spirit and wisdom? If it were not true what I'm saying, why would they lay hands upon them and pray over them if these things are not true? Deacons need wisdom, they need the Spirit, and they need these things for the demands of their work. All ministry, whether it's meeting the inner man or the outer man, has to be shaped by these principles that we're talking about. I have said being a pastor is like being a farmer. I was raised in western Nebraska among farmers. That's the work I did growing up. But every farmer has a saying, a farmer's work is never done. You look out across those fields, you look at your stock that, that needs tending, you, need, you see the fence that needs to be fixed, you look at your buildings, all these things, and you see all the work that needs to be done, and it's more than these two hands can do. But a deacon feels no less those same things. As you look out upon your work, those visits, those visits that you need to make and they're overdue, uh, the constant weight of your thinking of those in your church body who are wounded, those, those who are weak, those who are high maintenance for good reasons. That reluctant member who's quietly eluding you because they're embarrassed about your last conversation when you were trying to ask them if they needed help. That one conversation that went bad, you need to make it right. That, that one case that's constantly weighing upon you, that last one that you got wrong, and that current case that has you totally mystified. Are deacons in any less need of spiritual encouragement and refreshment? Are they in any less need of prayer? What is prayer? 
Prayer is admitting to God that you've come to the end of your strength and your wisdom. You actually came to it earlier than now, you just didn't realize it. And you are desperate. You are desperately in need of his prayer, just as desperate as a pastor or an elder or a missionary or a teacher. And we pray when we realize that the results that we're laboring for cannot come from our own doing, despite all of our talent, despite all of our hard work. And we pray when it sinks in that we are completely outmatched by the world and by our adversary, the devil, and our work. That's why Ollie Housby in his book on prayer says this. He says, prayer is the most important work in the kingdom of God. He says this is true because it is a prerequisite to all the rest of the work we have to do in the kingdom of God, whether it's preaching, pastoral work, meetings, administrative work, organizational work, and we could add diaconal work. Charles Bridges says this in his book on the Christian ministry. He says, prayer is only half our ministry, but it's what gives power to the other half of our ministry. And this is true. This horizontal needs, they're, they're multitude, they're considerable, and they're discouraging. But a deacon's hope is set on the vertical provision which is more than you could ever ask or imagine. Brothers, when we we think upon these things, and I keep talking about the spiritual fruit that comes from meeting any need, this really becomes like the last test of what we're talking about. What should be the result of what you meet the needs of the outer man or these outer things? Is the only result that that case number gets removed from an Excel file? It's like, okay, that case is done. Is that that the way we look at it? Or is it supposed to produce something more than that? And the uniform testimony of the New Testament is that when we are meeting the needs of God's people, whether it's inner or outer, it has the same spiritual fruit. It brings forth the same things. So think of what Paul says in Philippians 4 to that Philippians church. Every other church had abandoned him. The optics were bad. Our guy's in prison. All right, we're not going to fund him anymore. But one church stood with him. He says, you Philippians know yourselves that when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you, you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, listen to what he says here, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, listen to this, a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul writes to the church there about the the ministry for the saints. That's the word, but it means the offering that's being collected. And he says, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Verse 11, it will produce thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for others. It's having a spiritual effect. And then the previous chapter, 2 Corinthians 8, when he talks about this gift for the Macedonian churches, or from the Macedonian churches, he says, their abundance of joy, despite their poverty, overflowed in a wealth of generosity in their part, for they gave according to their means and beyond their means. 
begging us earnestly to take part in the relief of the saints. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of what? Grace. Also, he puts it right in there among the rest of them. There is this spiritual activity that is taking place even when you are meeting fiscal needs. It is bearing spiritual fruit. Brothers, we just simply think of how our Lord commended. In all four Gospels, we have this account of the woman went to his feet, perfumed his feet, and Christ said, this is a beautiful thing that she's done for my body. And wherever the Gospels preach, this will be said of her. The New Testament is making very clear, even when we're meeting the outer needs of the saints, we are doing great spiritual good that's encouraging the saints. And perhaps when we think of the most important spiritual fruit, what is it that sets us apart from any ordinary community? What sets us apart that, that proves we're truly a communion of saints? More than anything else, the New Testament is very clear. What is it? And it's love. It's love. John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And the New Testament's clear about this. In 1 John, we read of this obligation to love. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. That's, you know this, right? But love is not just for meeting inward needs. It must also extend to outward needs. You know this more than anyone else. But in the previous chapter, John puts it this way in 1 John three sixteen: By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And you see, I think we can even say that the community of the saints often finds its most beautiful expression in tangible, physical, fiscal needs when they're being met. And many of us in this room can testify to that point in time when that financial gift came unexpectedly in the nick of time. And many of you deacons have witnessed this when you came and you, you helped pay a bill or you provided that service, you were fixing a car or painting a room or a house, mowing a lawn, shoveling snow, delivering food or doing a short-term mission trip for somebody. You were there when that outpouring of tears came. Because you brought relief. And in so doing, what did you do? You brought the love of Christ. And when we show that, when we show this genuine nature of our spiritual gifts and love, what are we doing? We are unveiling the true source of our life. It's the horizontal that begins to testify to the vertical. And the communion between brothers and sisters in Christ is revealing what? It's revealing that we have this living communion with God. And such grace and such kindness and gentleness and unselfishness and humility this is not common in the world. This is not seen. 
And when the world sees this, when it watches the communion of the saints flourish with this kind of beauty, it beholds something that transcends their own experience and efforts. They sense something higher, something greater, something deeper. There's a fragrance of this world above. There's something holy about this, and the appeal is undeniable because it's so much more than a community. It's the communion of the saints. And the ministry of mercy is in the heart of it. Is at the heart of it. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this time together to investigate your word, to reflect upon its truth, and to think upon how it applies to each and every one of us as a brother and sister in Christ but especially to these men, these deacons who serve our church and serve us so well. We pray that because of this time together, they will serve it better, that other office bearers will look at them with the respect that they deserve and to pray for them in their ministry as they pray for their own ministry. We pray, Father, that we would all of us see ourselves as those who are in desperate need of your grace, and only by your Spirit can we do the work that you've called us to do. And, oh, Father, help us to get beyond ourselves, beyond our sense of our own talents and gifts, and to see how greatly our people need Christ. They do not need us or what we have to offer. They need what Christ has to offer by the power of his Spirit. So help us to turn again and again to you for all these things. And we pray this especially, Father, because we are concerned for the encouragement of the saints. We are concerned that they will give glory to the one who deserves the glory. And we desire that they would be much helped in their walk with Christ in this ugly world. We pray, Father, for our church in this regard that we'd be faithful. But faithful not only in the ministry of the word, not only in the faithful ministry of shepherding, but faithful in the ministry of mercy. Help us in these things. And we thank you, Father, for the grace that Christ supplies for us to do these things. And we rejoice even now that the good fruit that will come to your church especially as this world looks upon us longingly, desires to be part of a group of people that love each other like this. And as they come in our midst to hear and to see and to believe in the one who sacrificed himself for us and to embrace him by faith and to love him and to serve him and obey him to the end of days. We pray this, Father. We pray this fruit to come from all that we do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers, if you have questions, uh, Craig is willing to entertain them. If you do, I'd, if you mind, wouldn't mind, just stand and also speak loudly. Go ahead. Okay, like uh, what you just said, reading your lines, uh, real life scenario. Regarding Confession 26, that the states of spirits into their mutual edification is also relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. Let me give you a scenario. You got a whole list of widows, more widows coming every year. Um, some of them living in homes that they've lived in for years, two, three, four bedrooms. You got other younger widows or single women um, struggling to, they're, they're 67% of their income is going for 
apartment rent, which is going up next time they sign leases. Maybe even going to cost more to stay in an apartment. Gas prices are going up. Um, so the younger single women, they're like, well, maybe I should find an apartment someplace else, but it's so far away to find a cheap apartment. But it's like the price of gas is like it keep going to our church. So you got this scenario, like how would you communicate to the older widows? So would you just rent a room to one of the younger widows? We tried to communicate this and it never got beyond their deacon boards really. It kind of just like, well, it's too messy. Um, so talking about this a little bit, decided to table it. You know, hearing you talk again today, it's like, how could you communicate to the older widows, you know what, you might need a new room, why don't you rent a room to one of the younger widows, then that could be the roof partly. But yet, you can't tell them what to do. That's where we ended up. You can't tell people what to do. Like, you see all the needs, it's like, you know, if you ladies would help each other, can you communicate details like that, or should we just, you know, give it? Little hints in the prayer letter. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Do you teach a Sunday school class on it, or do you just like keep praying? This is what we're doing. We're just mainly praying about it. Yeah, well, I'm glad we're starting with an easy one. <laughs> it sounds like such a deacon question. Uh, ministers aren't competent to answer those kind of questions. <laughs> Well, I, I would turn to 1 Timothy 5. I mean, the principles are there about who should be enrolled. And it, he, Paul does lay out parameters in terms of how we assess need there. And he talks about real widows, not just widows, but real widows. And so he's saying there's a differentiation in terms of, of need. So I, would, I always would want to start there in terms of, if I could put it this way, this is kind of crass, but not all widows are created equally. He's saying that there are some that can be a little bit more dependent upon family, others that are just, they, they literally, uh, their life hangs and falls by the church. And so we have to assess those needs and, and make those priorities. But I think, brother, yeah, I think to be candid, I, I think unless you're encouraging sending threatening letters anonymously, threatening some sort of violence, which I don't think we encourage that in the church, I, I think we have to be careful how far we can push somebody. And, and a deacon understands this. When we're talking about uh, somebody moving from the place that has been home for decades where they raised children, it is, it is so incredibly personal. And I, I think the only thing I would tell you would be patience. Saying that the, the lady that owns the home should keep her home. No, I, I know what you're saying. Maybe she's got three bedrooms, she's 75, maybe you got someone else that's younger that's in the market that they cannot afford. Right. No, I, yeah, no, I'm not saying I would. And what I was getting at was this, is that you're, this is a sacred place. And so maybe even you're encouraging you to open this sacred place to somebody else, maybe you don't know so well, maybe you don't trust, is asking, it's a big ask. It, does, it seems like a very practical, pragmatic thing, right? Good, you got three bedrooms, just rent one of those bedrooms. So that's, that's where I'm struggling is, like, we talk about the communion of saints, but then when you actually get into the practicality, say, whoa, 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 whoa that's too messy. It's time to actually practice the communion of the saints. Yeah, no, it's, t- it's tough. I mean, she might try and say, well, you have an extra room. Why don't you rent a room? <laughs> and and that, then you begin to feel what we're, what we're talking about. And so I'm saying I would definitely include an elder in this, and, and I would be praying over it and saying, are we, are we going beyond our, our bounds? And we do this all the time as officers. We overstep. 
and we make bad mistakes, and, and, and there's this carnage. And so we have to be really careful about that. So that's why not even knowing the situation, I would be, I would be hesitant to give you any advice in that. Where we're at right now, we just keep praying about it. Yeah, and, but, I would, but I would start to fill things out with some of these parties. And, and if, if you're just getting nothing but a, a stone wall, then I would say patience would be important there. I, but I, I understand what you're saying in terms of the costs and all that. That makes total sense. But it makes total sense to you. It doesn't make sense to her. But it's, it's more than that. I think it's deeper. There's always a presenting issue, right? Then there's the deeper thing. So I think it's a great question. Ask somebody who knows what they're talking about. Can I uh, offer a possible solution based on your comments, Dr. Carl? You connected the vertical to mercy mercy. You might have a conversation with these folks and state something clearly. How might you help to the elder widow? How might you help this younger widow worship better? How might you help her connect to the vertical? How might we help her? She's in distress. She can't pay her bills. She's not at peace at the moment because of that, and her worship is being impacted. Would you be willing to help this younger widow become more at peace, seeing the love of another saint extended to her to help her connect to the vertical and love God better and worship? If you emphasize what you did, I believe, emphasize the vertical first to the horizontal. I think then you appeal to the the sharing of gifts and graces to the body. Go ahead. Um, so as you, as you mentioned, things like uh, the emphasis in, say, the church uh, on community is a common theme you see uh, you emphasize uh, the communion of saints being a bond of deep love between people, of, of knowing each other, meeting practical needs, and also being a witness to the world around you to, to see the love that we have, starting the vertical and spread that horizontal. I can't help but think about something like community groups, especially coming out of COVID. Um, many people were not meeting uh, even really as friends too much. Right. Now that we're Thankfully, seem to be done with it. Community groups, at least for my church, I keep hearing, keep hearing little, little, little murmurs and conversations, good murmurs, about what about community groups and something we could do. Um, is this something that you think is consistent with that vision of the community of saints? And if so, um, what are, would you perhaps say in your experience, are some um, things to pursue in, in, these, in these community groups? And things to avoid. Here, any practical, helpful uh, principle of wisdom to give somebody who is looking to help move a church in the direction of community groups. Yeah, I should I should say one thing I meant to say in my talk too. Um, your church may have a, a vision statement or mission statement. It has the phrase in it, "building community." I'd say one thing that's not necessarily bad. Number two, your deacons—that was the elders that put that in there. It's not your fault. Um, <laughs> So it's a good day to be a deacon. Uh, elders aren't here. We can trash it. We can take them, guys. 
ministers and deacons together. But um, be very clear. That's not a bad phrase. And it's not, you should go home and take it out. That's not what I'm saying. It's like, as long as we understand what community means to us. And that outside of Christ, we have no community. So that's not your question. But I just thought it was an important qualifier. Um, we're interested in the substance, right? So I have not pastored a, a church where we had community groups or s- small groups. A couple of pieces of advice would be, though, definitely you want to talk to others about mistakes that they've made and, and, and successes that they've enjoyed. You want to speak to those who, who kind of have been bumped and bruised through this um, and, and have perhaps come to some conclusions that would really help you in your church. So there's a there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. This can be done very well. It can also be done in a way that and will be detrimental to your church, especially to her inner unity. So nothing in a small group should run uh, at cross purposes with the allegiance to the larger church body. It, it can never undercut that larger fellowship. It should never, ever undercut the ministry of the word, for instance. So we believe all the gifts of the Spirit are endowed by the Spirit, but we do believe there's a difference between sacraments and means of grace. And that not all means of grace are sacraments. All the sacraments are means of grace. But not all means of grace are on the same level. The ministry of the word is, is a very, it's, it's a particular status. And that can be certainly exercised in a general way. I mean, ministering the word in a small group. But it can't be at cross purposes uh, with the ministry of the word in the Lord's day. And, and I, I have, happen to agree with Bill on, on this, um, that I think that, Communion of the saints in the, in, the, in the fellowship, that is a means of grace. Very clearly, it's a distribution of the Spirit, even, 1 Corinthians 12 says to each. But it doesn't mean they're all on the same level in terms of uh, as means of grace. And so we want to make that distinction. It seems to me that's an important one. So there's a lot of good that can take place there, but it can never supplant, it can never take the place of what happens with regard to the charge God has given, Christ has given to his larger church. Like if you go to a small group and they're saying, hey, we're having the Lord's Supper today. It's like, okay, we need to rethink the small group. I mean, I love the deacon we have, but I don't think he's supposed to be doing this. And so there's all kinds of things that can happen. Um, and you just need to make sure they're uh, being resourced well in terms of leadership and accountability. I don't think it means you have to have an elder in every group, but it means you have to have somebody that's trustworthy. Paul talks about that in trusting the gospel to reliable men. I don't think that means just ordained people. Or something else is going to say. I think you just have to take those precautions and make sure that you have a good assessment plan. Like, how are we doing? How are we really doing? And how are we using our time? And I think part of the social fabric of that, the fellowship, we learned the last two years how important it was for it simply to be together, just fellowshipping. Before we even talk about means of grace, I just want to look you in the face. I mean, the first time some people came back to church and we sang together the first time, well, they, they are crying tears. Like, we did not realize how thirsty we were for this. So that is an important component. We've learned that. Okay, we're not going to make that mistake again. And so I think that's an important part of that fabric. But it's got to be, you know, word-centered for sure. There's got to be something with the word happening there. So I, I would say that's good. I mean, we're talking about this in our, in our session, too. Our, our pastor, Eric Watkins, we get confused all the time for each other. People come up to me and say, are you Eric Watkins? Because we look so much, so similar. Um, <laughs> But he's had experience in this, and he's here, and you should definitely talk to him about it. And other ministers, too. Find them, and other deacons or elders who've had experience in this. And again, tell me what worked, what did not work. 
To me, that's so important. That school of hard knocks. That's how we... That's why I'm a good PT professor. Here are seven things you should never do in a wedding. And, I, and I've done them all. <laughs> right. All right. Bruce McCowell, Hubert, Georgia. A question for you uh, in this goal for fostering communion of saints. Do you have any recommendations about how deacons should be interfacing with the session? Any comment? Well, I'm, I'm going to say this for the third time. I agree with Bill Shishko. You know, I was last night, he said three times, I'm sure Craig's going to talk about this. I thought, I should get two hours for all the stuff I'm going to address. Yeah, see, our book talks about this. It doesn't require how often, but deacons and elders should be meeting together. I mean, you've got to be doing that. You're, you're, and you're doing it all the time informally anyway. But I think it would be to sit down and talk and say, how can we do this? Where can we help you in this ministry? And I think um, we, we need to just pay attention to space. Like when we even set up a room, how, how is the room situated? Is it really situated for conversation? Is it situated in such a way that so there's a feeling that we're together? I think those are just important practical questions. Uh, most of you don't know what I'm talking about. Ask your wife. She knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I mean, there's, there's paying attention to those details and asking the elders where they need help with that. That's the sort of conversation I would have. I, so I don't have something more specific. But Bob Houston from Church in Columbus, Ohio. Craig, uh, I, I uh, think it's important that deacons teach and train members uh, how to be gospel-focused, spirit-filled in terms of the work that they do. What are some practical ways that these deacons train, teach, encourage, and support our members in gospel-filled diaconal ministry in our churches? Boy, I, I wish I had a, just a, a backlog of, of wisdom and experience on this. I think this is one of the areas where I, I was probably weakest in my ministry. I've talked to a lot of ministers who, who feel that one of the areas where we feel really um, shorthanded is um, training our deacons. Because an officer training, in, in my opinion, and what I've done is, is it's mostly individual, but the heavy emphasis early in my ministry was on the doctrinal standards. Now, that's a given. We need to have all of our officers trained well on the doctrinal standards. But as I moved along in the ministry, it tended more towards, like, what's the actual function of the office? So for elder, we're spending a lot of time in shepherding. And in our session meetings, we would spend 10, 15 minutes beginning reviewing a three-year cycle, and one of those cycles was shepherding. What are we, when you go to the hospital, what are you doing? What should be your goal? We need something similar for deacons. And I think that's where a minister has got to come alongside a deacon and say, you, you really need to help me out. And that's an area where I felt like I felt short in my two pastorates. Just did not do that well enough. Didn't have the vision for it. Didn't have the experience for it. And look back upon it with some regret. But I definitely could say, you could, there's no reason why you can't have a workshop. We have all kinds of workshops. We have teacher workshops. We get all our Sunday school teachers together. We bring somebody who knows what they're talking about and have a Saturday workshop, throw in a lunch. And those are really helpful for our teachers, but why couldn't you do that for people in your church? Not just candidates for, for deacons, but anybody who you really think has a, a gift for serving, they just, they just are doing stuff. You grab them and bring them and, and have them bring somebody else that they think has some ability and, and use some of the materials you, you can get from our, our, our denominational committee. I mean, they, they're probably would be more helpful to you than I am, which means I just wasted your time. But... Those are some ideas. A Sunday school series? Why couldn't you do a Sunday school class? 
When we do the doctrine of the church, we always do chapter 25. Why not include some goodies? Like, well, here's what deacons are doing. And here's what you, here's what you can do to help the deacons. Why not do that? So I've noticed over the years and uh, a couple times that I've served as deacon that we need to look at our congregation for the gifts and talents that they have, right? Male or female. And especially as a deacon, when we have these situations with females, that we need to be aware of our female congregation and tap them on the shoulder for their years of experience or their trials and tribulations that they've been through. And then as deacons, equip those women and give them the resources or the monies they need and the labor they need to help these women out. It just, it goes miles. And it goes with the same thing with us males, right? We don't like to put our heart on our sleeves and we have to kind of see the bottle that up. But then when you get uh, an older gentleman in the church that's been there, done that, that you tap them on the shoulder and you have them go meet with Jimmy or Steve and um, equip them as well. You know, as a deacon, you need to use your resources, and a lot of those resources that you can use are right there in your own congregation. Uh, when you read from uh, question one, uh, it's all saints are united to Jesus Christ, and therefore being united to one another as well, we have communion on each other's gifts and graces. Uh, I notice, I think you do. Uh, paraphrase or substitute communion with God is the vertical communion with one another. Um, is question one referring to being united in Christ, the, the doctrine of uh, union with God, the union of the believer with God? And if so, is there a, which I mean, the Bible said a lot about, of course, is there a similar doctrine to the union of Christians uh, to one another in love? And if so, can you make the same sorts of conversations uh, that you did about communion of believers. Because it's the question is that communion of saints, not the union of saints and one another, but I use the term united for both the horizontal two words. Yeah, I, we, we certainly have the idea of our being united to one another. I'd have to think about that more. That's interesting. I don't think, offhand, I don't think there's a parallel construction there. The parallel is that because we're united to Christ in all of his work, as, you know, like Calvin had to say this, Christ closed with his gospel means that that all that he has purchased for us, and that includes the Spirit. It's derivative of that that we have this union uh, with one another and, and communion. Our, our, our standards do distinguish between union and communion. There's a catechism that talks about that. And our union with Christ cannot be jeopardized. It's a, it's a bond that cannot be undone um, to the praise of Christ and his completed work. The same is not true with our communion. That is often jeopardized. There are many seasons when we can have doubts and all sorts of things like that. In that sense, maybe you could draw a parallel, that the church is one, but there are seasons when we don't fill that communion with each other, maybe. But in terms of a strict theological construction, I don't think it would probably work. But I could th- I'd have to think about it more. It's an interesting question. Do you have any advice for churches like ours in Florida, which seems to have a large... Uh, portion of the congregation, which is elderly and retired, uh, and then a number of younger families, the two don't always necessarily mix easily and have that fellowship. You know, do you have any advice on ways to pull everyone together in methods of fellowship that would foster this community of the saints? Yeah, it, it doesn't take much. I think you just have to plant a few seeds 
That was true. When I first came to Calvary, there was one child in the nursery that was my son, Philip. It was an older congregation. And just talking to a few younger families and saying, would you consider sitting with this widow on Sundays? Just kind of adopt her. Now, you kind of have to scope this out and get a sense of, I think this is something they would be interested in doing. And just ask them, you know, more generally how they think they could uh, meet their needs. But I think something like that would be very helpful. Do something nobody ever does at a church mill. Give assigned seating, you know. Or give assigned seating to one table, and that table goes first. Um, you know, I, I think there's ways you could, could gently contrive that, that cross-pollination. But I think it's singling out a few people that you sense already have a strong gift of hospitality on the younger side, but then also maybe encouraging uh, some older saints. I remember there's one uh, saint who has gone to be with Christ, and when I came to Calvary, he said to me once, these seminary students, they don't pay for their seats, and they're gone before you know it. And it was her way of saying, I'm not going to pay them any attention. And I remember talking to her and just simply saying, you know, there's another way of looking at this. And I won't give you the, the long conversation. The next thing I know it, she adopted this seminary family, would have them over. And that bond between them, by the time that, that seminary family graduated, she was distraught in the, in the most beautiful sense of the word. It was like her sending off her own children. And, and that man I'm talking about, he and I conducted her funeral together. And he was her first choice. I was, I was his, his wingman. And as it should have been. And it was beautiful. And that, it just, that just how it started. And just a couple things like that. And before you know it, you have these people talking to each other. And especially a teenager, a teenage uh, young lady who has some questions, steer her towards an older saint. And, and just, just let it happen. And, and I mean, it's really amazing when you see that, when you see a, a 75-year-old widow and a teenager talking to her and they're both lighting up. It's, it's really beautiful. So I think just a gentle nudge. But again, as our brother said, you know, having an eye out for gifts. Every pastor at a church gathering is doing that. His, his radar is up. He's looking who's naturally serving, who's leading, who are people gathered around. You know, who's a person who's showing kindness? Who's a person who's such a good listener? You know, you're tapping into those those are going into the data bank because you're, you're thinking those are future leaders. These are future servants. We have time for one more. Go ahead. Uh, Luke Fossil, Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Charlotte. Uh, I appreciate what you said regarding, you mentioned a few times, uh, the pandemic and how COVID really exposed a lot of our um, inabilities to have that community. And, and that communion of the saints. I agree with you, it was so wonderful to get back into worship and we realized, you know, just what we missed and how much we craved it. As a deacon, I'm particularly concerned is uh, I recognize a lot of the uh, particular demographics that I'm, I'm, I have an eye for, the elderly, uh, those with, with special needs. There were extra challenges in providing yeah. that type of community of the saints. My question for you is, uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure many in our congregations and even within our leadership recognize that same challenge. And in many cases, we're very antagonistic towards that. And I don't know 
wanted to hear your thoughts on how do we expose that, how do we address that, and you know what could be said, you know, post pandemic or even if that were to come again, how we can bring to light some of those extra challenges that are for such a critical uh, community of saints element for those for that particular demographic. Well, I mean, on one on one level, we're talking about a deeper spiritual problem, and that has to be addressed. The question is how. Do you address it right from the pulpit? That's our, sometimes that's our knee-jerk. It's like, well, I'm going to preach a sermon on this. and I'm not sure that's always the right approach. Sometimes it is, to be very straightforward. But I think there's lots of training that can take place in Sunday school or informally, maybe one-on-one, grabbing two or three people that you think could be really helpful. But, there's a, but hospitality is not just an outward expression. It's, it's, it's an attitude. It's a love of strangers. It's this outgoing moving beyond my comfort zone. And, and some of our saints have a hard time with it, but that's a command for all Scripture. The elders, ministers are supposed to be experts in this. It's a requirement of their office, and so they set the example that way. But all of us are meant to express this and have this, this looking out uh, towards others, especially those in need. So I think it has to be addressed uh, directly, but whether it's you know, asking the pastor to consider whether it should be talked about from the pulpit uh, picking appropriate passage, and there are many of them that talk about the compassion we should have towards this this group in our church, um, or just pulling different individuals out of the church that we that we talk to one on one. There's so much that needs to be done one on one. We've we've lost our edge on discipleship and the significance and the power of doing things one on one. Discipleship ministry. There's so much there. I mean, look at the ministry of our Lord. So I only want the 12 guys for this one. I want you three. I mean, so much of his ministry, he's comfortable talking to thousands, but, but so much of it is this concentrated form of ministry. I think that means something. I'm just guessing. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, so we shouldn't feel like we're wasting our time. We're, we're so impacted by the idea of platform and influence. And that's overrated. You know, look to the master in this. And so I think being content with a few people and saying, this is the problem. We, we need help. The other thing is deacons should always feel free to delegate, and, and, and you're, you always should be recruiting help. You should have no problem asking people for help in these situations. And if you feel like you're, not, you're running into roadblocks there, then you talk to the elders and, and the minister saying, we think we're running into kind of a little bit of a spiritual problem here. And that's, again, that's that cross-section of, inner, uh, of communication. So that's off the cuff. It's a, it's a good question. Hello, this is Tim Hopper, a deacon from Shiloh Presbyterian Church and a member of the Committee on Diaconal Ministries. I hope you found some good takeaways from this episode with Reverend Troxel on the deacon and his congregation, as well as the other episodes from the National Diaconal Summit 4 that occurred in the summer of 2022, all previously released on the Reformed Deacon. This is the final episode of the National Diaconal Summit series, but if you missed any of these invaluable episodes, make sure to go back and listen or watch the video versions on opccdm.org. The last thing I wanted to mention is to our Presbytery Diaconal Committee members. The Committee on Diaconal Ministry of the OPC and the Committee on Ministerial Care are happy to announce that the next Presbytery Diaconal Summit is being planned for Thursday, November 2nd until Saturday, November 4th in 2023 in Chicago, Illinois. This summit is exclusively for OPC Presbytery Diaconal Committee members. You can find out much more including the possibility to 
to have your travel covered by the CDM and CMC. Just go to opccdm.org and find out more. Thanks for joining us. Go to our website, thereformdeacon.org. There you will find all our episodes, program notes, and other helpful resources. And please make plans to join us again next month for another episode of the Reform Deacon Podcast.